Cheers there. Anyway, this week we are going to be continuing our sermon series in Luke, um, and we're calling it Journey to Jerusalem. And I don't know for you if this is a, a sermon series or a journey that we're on, we're like, yeah, we're going on a journey, or if this is like, are we there yet? <laughs> So I'm not sure what that is for you, but I can tell you that yesterday I had competing priorities and I had to paint a railing at a house that my family is going to be moving into soon. And, and painting a railing is a really boring and tedious job. And, and, and you're just sitting there with a paintbrush and you're just painting around spindles and it's, it's not fun at all. But on top of that, I had to prepare for my message today and I needed to go over it a few more times so it would be in my head and I wouldn't you know, have to look at my computer the whole time. And so I thought, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to read through my message. I'm going to speak into a voice recorder. And then, and then I'm just going to play it on my phone, in my ears, while I'm, you know, painting and stuff like that. And I thought that would be really good. So, but the problem is it was like two and a half hours of painting. And that's not how long the sermon is this morning. But for two and a half hours, I listened to myself over and over again. And I was so bored. <laughs> I can't tell you if it was the railing or if it was the sermon. But we're going to find out together this morning, right? We're on a journey. So here we go. Um, at this point, it, Jesus's ministry is drawing to a close. He has been doing three years now of, of preaching and teaching and healing, and people have gotten to see what he's, he's all about. And, and now he's headed towards Jerusalem, and the people that God has chosen are, uh, are about to hand him over to be crucified. You know, and I think this is ironic because Jesus is God's greatest revelation to his people that has been here since the Garden of Eden. You know, the work and the person of Jesus is God's greatest revelation. And, and yet here is God's chosen people and they're deciding to hand him over to be crucified. And I'm just like, wow, like that is, it's mind blowing to me that these people would do that. But that's the reality of what they're faced with or what we're faced with. And it's not just the Jews who would have been like this. God could have picked any people group, all of us, it doesn't matter who we are. We're all, we all have this kind of predisposition to making bad decisions when it comes to picking God. You know, if we know God's on the right, we're going left. If God's up, we're going down. You know, like that, we just make bad calls over and over when it comes to finding God and chasing after him. And that's because we have this sinful flesh that's always pulling us in the opposite direction and there's always this tension in life between what our soul and our spirit wants and what our flesh is calling us to try and satisfy in itself you know we'll reject God even if the evidence that we are presented with in life screams to the contrary and this is because the Bible says we have hard hearts and that's what we're going to be talking about today we're going to take a look at what it looks like when you have a hard heart towards Jesus and see what that looks like and we're going to look at that in Luke chapter 11 verses 14 through 28 and if you want to open that up in your Bible you can right now what we have here is the passage that Pastor Dave read to us a bit earlier uh, is a crowd of people where Jesus performs this miracle and in this crowd it's a mixed group you've got some Jews you probably have some Gentiles which is people who are not Jewish and then you have this group of Pharisees these people who loved the law they loved to teach it they loved to talk about it they loved to study it they loved to live by it and so you've got this mixed group of people who experience this miracle together however as we read the passage and we look at it today we're going to see that there's actually two very different reactions to Jesus performing this miracle some are choosing to look at it and they're choosing to see Jesus for who he is the Messiah the chosen one the son of God and others are looking at it and they're they're going like, I got a hard heart to this. I got to explain this away somehow. I don't believe what I'm seeing. 
A couple of weeks ago, my daughter forgot her, her cell phone in the seat pocket of an airplane. And right now you guys are like, what kind of a bad parent gives their young child a cell phone, right? No, that's an old cell phone that I handed down. Stop judging me. It's my old one, okay? So anyway, my daughter, who's only had this thing because I got a new cell phone <laughs> um, just before Christmas, I gave her my old cell phone. She put it in the seat pocket of this airplane when we were coming back home from a trip, and she left it in there. Now, I was... I was uh, checking all the seat pockets around me to make sure that we didn't leave anything, but I couldn't reach the seat pocket where she was sitting because the plane was landing. We had to have our seat belts on. And so I said to my son, my 12-year-old son, whom I trust and who's so responsible, I leaned over to him. I said, you know, son, would you be willing to, to, to check the seat pocket for your sister? Just make sure she didn't leave anything in there. Now, I should have known better. And I should have checked for myself because my boy, I love my boy, but he will lose a toque if it's on his head. Okay, this past week, my son comes into the bathroom while I was getting ready for work. And he's like, dad, I can't find the water bottle. And I'm like, oh, it's in our bedroom, son. So he goes in there and he's looking around for this water bottle. Now you gotta know one thing here. There's four surfaces in our room that that water bottle could be on. There's two end table type things and there's two dressers. That's it. And so he's looking for this water bottle and he can't find it. He comes in the bathroom and goes, Dad, you know, like I, I can't find it anywhere. So giving him the benefit of the doubt as early in the morning and, and I'm like, okay, well, maybe, he, maybe it fell behind the table or something. So I walk in, like my foot doesn't even cross the threshold of the door and I'm like, it's right there, Bennett. It's right there on the dresser. Like if you close your eyes and you just flail your arms, you'd probably knock it off. How are you missing this, son? But this is a very regular experience in our house is, you know, telling the kids to find something, especially my son and him not, he's screaming at the TV right now. He's at home. He's probably like, dad, why are you saying that? But anyway, he can't find anything. And so I should have known better and I should have looked in that seat pocket myself, but I didn't. Now, because we were flying Air Canada, uh, you can't just simply call somebody and say, hey, like I left my cell phone, uh, you know, in the seat pocket of an airplane on 28F or whatever. Like you can't do that. They have this system set up which has the appearance of caring about what you've lost, right? Where you fill out a form and then they send it off to probably some junk mail somewhere and nobody's ever going to find it. And I knew that if I had to fill out that form to recover my daughter's cell phone, we were never going to see that cell phone again because that plane was going to take off and it was going to be gone. So I headed off to the airport and I'm like, I got to get a hold of somebody, some human being and tell them, you know, just get my daughter's phone out of here. Like just radio the plane, whatever you have to do, just leave it at the next airport. But if I have to stick to this form, it's never going to happen. So I tear off to the airport and I head to the oversized baggage claim because I saw a person there and I walk in the door and I start explaining our story. And before I was even done, the lady looks at me and she goes, what color was it? And I'm like, it was purple with a galaxy thing on it. And, and she, she reaches down in mid-sentence and she pulls out my daughter's phone and there it is. And I'm so relieved, you know, because we have found this phone. Apparently, apparently one of the groomers had gone through the plane. They had discovered the phone and, and thankfully it was found. Anyway, the bottom line is though here is I should have checked that seat pocket myself because I can look in that seat pocket and I can discover a cell phone that's in it. But my son can look in that seat pocket and I don't know what Bennett sees, but he doesn't see a cell phone, okay? The Pharisees in our passage today were much like this. Jesus, the son of God, is standing right in front of them and somehow they missed it. 
And it's dumbfounding as we look at this passage today in scripture, how they could actually see what they saw with their eyes and still miss what was standing right in front of them. Now, like me, you've probably heard this story before if you've been in church for any time at all. You've probably read through it and you're like, yeah, this is a pretty good story. It's got some teaching in it. It's got a miracle in it. That's really, that's really great. But there's actually even more here when we look at it. This is actually a really powerful passage of scripture when you take a moment to study the scene. And when we do, we see three things come to light. First, we see that Jesus demonstrates to us that he is the Messiah. He is the chosen one of God in this passage. Second, we see that he actually divides crowds as they are faced with the reality of Jesus. When you are confronted with Jesus, you are forced to make a decision about him. His work demands that we have some kind of response. And the third thing we see is Jesus gives us a threefold response to the people who might choose to try and explain him away. And so we're going to look at some of those today. Now, if you're here today or you're watching online and you're like, you know what, like, I, I don't, I'm a little skeptical about this whole Jesus thing. Or, or maybe like you're sitting here and you're going, I don't think I've ever even heard Jesus's voice. Well, would you be willing today to just kind of set aside all of that stuff, set aside any of the preconceived expectations or notions that you have about Jesus? And let's just look at the passage of scripture today and what we learn about Jesus as he reveals himself in these passages. And then once we've gone through this, we can, we can then make a decision for or against Jesus based on what the Holy Spirit has oppressed upon our heart this morning. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we just ask now as we study your word and we get into this a little bit deeper and learn a little bit more that you would show us your son Jesus in it. That you would speak to us all individually and impress upon our hearts the things that you want us to know about you, the things that you are calling us to do and the ways you want us to change. Lord, may your Holy Spirit be upon each of us individually, whether online, listening to this at some time in the future or here now. May your Holy Spirit do a work in us and hear from you this morning. In your name we pray, amen. All right, let's get into it. Here we go. Right off the start, Luke starts this passage, you know, very abruptly. And when you kind of come across this story, it's like, whoa, he just kind of hits it. And here it is. He says, Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke. Now let's stop right there for a second. That's the end of the miracle. We're gonna go through 15 verses today and the story is 15 verses long in Luke and Luke wraps up this miracle in like half a verse, three quarters of a verse and it's over with. He just blazes through this part of the story which for many of us would have been this incredible thing to witness. Like can you imagine standing in the presence of somebody who had a demon cast out of him? Like that would be the part of the story that would talk, like take 20 minutes for us to explain. Luke does it in like a few words and it's over with. But he does this on purpose because there's actually something more amazing going on here that he wants to draw our attention to. And he doesn't give us a bunch of detail about the healing because uh, that's just a waste of time. They're just insignificant details and he's trying to draw our attention into something really important. And as a matter of fact, it's the lack of detail in the story that causes the one detail that he does give us to stand out at us. And that is that this guy is a mute and we learn that. And so this should grab our attention and indicate to us that there's something significant about this. If he's gonna just give us one detail, then it should cause us to want to explore that a little bit. And so we're gonna do that right now. So a mute, just so we're clear, is somebody who cannot speak. They don't, this demon that has taken over this guy has degraded this guy's mind, has degraded his body to the point where he can no longer speak. 
And Matthew has a parallel account of this scripture. And in Matthew, we hear that the guy was actually blind and there was other things going on. But for our purposes here today, it's just that he was mute, okay? Now, this is a very important element to the story because the Jews had a prescribed method for casting out demons. And we, we sometimes think, well, maybe it's just since Jesus came and only Christians can do this kind of thing and whatever. No, the Jews were casting out demons a long time before Jesus showed up on the scene. And they had three, a three-part method that they used to do that. First, they would initiate contact and communication with the demon. They would speak to the demon and the demon would speak back to them. That was the first thing they would do. Then they would try and get the demon to give them its name. If they could get the demon to get, give them its name, that was a critical thing because they would then use that name to cast that demon out, which was the third thing they would do is use the name to cast the demon out of that person. And we actually get to see Jesus using this method in Mark chapter five when he casts out a demon. He establishes this, uh, the demon um, was roaming around on the hills, uh, had possessed this guy, and the guy was roaming around on the hills. And, and Jesus approaches, and the demon approaches Jesus, and Jesus starts talking to this demon through this guy. And then Jesus acquires this demon's name, and the demon's name was Legion, because we find out it was like lots of demons. And then Jesus then casts that demon out. The demon goes into a bunch of pigs, and the pigs go running down a hill and drown as they go into this lake. So getting the demon's name is actually a really important part of this process. And so a Jewish exorcist uh, would communicate with the demon and then find out uh, the demon's name. But if they couldn't find out the name, then it was thought that it would be impossible to cast out that demon. This led to the conclusion then by a bunch of Jew by the Jewish community that only the Messiah was going to be able to cast out a mute demon. And so this is why it's so important that we have this detail of this guy being mute because he was, because Jesus was going to be the only one, the chosen one of God was going to be the only one who was going to be able to cast out this demon. So it's kind of amazing that this guy was born at this period in time because if he had been born at any other period in time, he might've been without a chance. Let's look at this from another angle so we can get a little bit more detail. We can get some more evidence and let's just have a fuller picture of this. This isn't Jesus's first time casting out a demon that's mute. We actually see him perform this type of exorcism before in Mark chapter nine. In this passage, Jesus' disciples, you might, you might have heard this before, Jesus' disciples are, are trying to cast out this mute demon and they're unable to do it. So they bring the demon to Jesus and Jesus uh, says to the guy, he goes, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And Jesus doesn't use that demon's name. Later on, his disciples kind of pull him aside and they're like, well, like, why can you do this and we can't do it? And Jesus says to them, he goes, well, it's only by prayer that you can cast out that kind of a demon. You know, you need to cry out to God and it'll be the finger of God that casts that demon out. But it's interesting because Jesus doesn't pray in that passage in Mark 9. He just commands the demon to leave and he leaves. And this leaves us wondering, well, if, G if, if God's finger is the one that casts that demon out and it's only by the power of God that that demon comes out, then how is it that Jesus can do that? And I think the, the conclusion we need to come to when we look at this is that, you know, Jesus may just be the son of God as we read that story. It's meant to lead us into that conclusion. Okay, and let's look at this from one more angle now. Let's look, put a little bit more meat on the bones. God has clearly given the Jews the power to cast out demons. 
so why didn't he give them the power to cast out all demons? Why is there just this one particular type of demon that he, he, he doesn't give them the power to cast out? And I think it's because he wants us to see this as a sign of the Messiah. If only the Messiah is going to be able to cast out a mute demon, no one else is going to be able to do it, then this should be a sign to us that Jesus is the Messiah or that the person doing it is the Messiah. So as we look at our passage today and we see Jesus casting out this mute demon, it should lead us to the conclusion as well as them that day that this is in fact the son of God. And when, and when Jesus does this in the crowd, it actually gets two very different reactions. First in verse 14b, we see, and the crowd was amazed. You know, they hadn't seen anything like this before or heard of anything like this. Jesus wasn't using the prescribed method and here he is able to cast out this mute demon and he's healed. Matthew records the similar story and he says, all the people were astonished and they said, could this be the son of David? Well, the son of David was another name for the Messiah. So there was people in the crowd that day that were going, wait a minute, what did that guy just do? Wait a minute, is this, is now the time? They weren't missing the water bottle that was sitting there as plain as day on the, on the dresser, you know? They, they opened the seat pocket and the cell phone was right there. They were getting it. The Messiah was right in front of them. Can you imagine how this would have felt as they, as they began to realize this? I mean, casting out a demon would be kind of like a neat thing to witness, probably terrifying. Uh, you know, seeing a guy's life completely changed in front of your eyes in an instant, that would be really neat. But that becomes, that is overshadowed as this realization begins to creep in that the long-awaited one, the one that, that generations of your people have been waiting for, is now possibly standing in your midst. Now, how would you feel if Jesus came to church this morning, but he didn't kind of reveal himself right away, which isn't what the Bible says is gonna happen. But let's say that happened. He kind of comes through the front doors in the morning and our first impression team, you know, they welcome him to church and he meanders through the foyer and he, you know, maybe he goes to the coffee bar and has a coffee. He's like, well, this is heavenly, you know. <laughs> But then he comes through the doors of the auditorium and, and the ushers help him find a seat right next to you. And you, because you are a great Ellersleyite and you know our three strategic directions and you know that one of those directions is invite, include, and invest. And you're like, I wanna include this guy in our church and make him feel welcome, so I'm gonna introduce myself. So you introduce yourself and he, he's like, oh, well, my name's Jesus. And you're like, hmm, that's an interesting name. And as you begin to talk to him, you begin, you begin to realize that this is actually the Jesus that I know of the Bible. And he's actually here today to take me home. And then the trumpet starts blaring and it's obvious and everybody's like, oh, today is the day. Jesus has come to take me home. Can you imagine if that was your reality right now? Like the next moment from now, we're gonna be standing in God's presence. Yay, we don't have to go to work tomorrow. <laughs> That's what it would have been like. It gives you an idea of how these people must have felt. Like this was a real event that happened and there was real emotion that was experienced as they realized that the long-awaited Messiah was now probably standing in their midst. How amazing it must have been for them. And so Luke records this, that they were amazed because this just rocked their world. But not everybody is impressed by this. You know, the Pharisees didn't really like Jesus. He wasn't quite meeting their expectations of a conquering hero. You know, they wanted a political leader and then a spiritual leader and in that order. But Jesus didn't seem to really care too much about politics. So he wasn't fitting the mold. But this created a bit of a problem for them because they knew the scriptures really well. And they knew that Jesus was starting to kind of fulfill all the things that the scriptures had written about him. 
Listen to Isaiah 35, verses three through six, what it says about the Messiah. Now, again, we know they studied the book of Isaiah because Jesus was reading it in one of the synagogues early on in his ministry. But listen to what this passage of scripture says. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give away. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind, pardon me. Then the eyes of the blind will be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue will shout for joy. Does that not sound like what has just happened in their midst? Has Jesus not just come and with divine retribution against this demonic force that's against this guy saved him? Are his eyes not open and his ears unstopped? Can he now speak? The Jews were accepting them, or expecting the Messiah to arrive and open the eyes of the blind, you know, unstop the deaf ears, make the lame walk. That's, these are the things that they were looking for. And now they were happening in their midst and the Pharisees did not know what to do with that. You know, John the Baptist questioned Jesus. But what John did that was different is he didn't allow the things that he was seeing and his preconceived notions, pardon me, to, to affect the things that he was seeing through Jesus. And we see John do this as he's in prison when he sends his disciples to question Jesus. And here's what they say. When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? And so Jesus provides them with this evidence that they're requesting, knowing that they're behind the scenes fact-checking everything he says. And I don't know if you watch CNN, but sometimes the president will give like a speech and then CNN's right away, they're like, let's fact-check him. Everything he says, you know, is it right, is it wrong? And there's like always like 25 things that the president said, they're like, he lied, he wasn't telling the truth, he didn't know what he's talking about, like, and they go on and on. Well, that's not the case with Jesus. Jesus is nailing every single one of those things. At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back to John or go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. In other words, hey guys, don't take my word for it. Let the miracles speak for themselves and then go and compare that with the prophecies that you've read. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Uh, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Let the miracles speak for themselves. You know, for John, the miracles revealed that the chosen one of God had arrived. But for the Pharisees, all of this stuff was leading them in a direction that they didn't like. And so this became a pivotal moment in the nation of Israel because after so many miracles and after all this irrefutable evidence that has been provided to them, confirming that Jesus is the Messiah, the leadership of Israel begins rejecting Jesus and trying to explain him away. And that's kind of where we're all at at some point, you know? We're faced with seeing Jesus. The Holy Spirit reveals him to us. And we choose to accept him or we can choose to explain him away. It's at this point in Matthew's account of this story where Jesus starts talking about the unforgivable sin and the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And I, I know Luke doesn't mention it, and so we're not gonna talk about it today, but I thought it was interesting to point out to you today that you know, at the point in the story where the Pharisees are rejecting Jesus and trying to explain all the miracles and the things away, it's at that point that Jesus comes in and starts talking about how you know, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and, and denying Jesus. So what do they do? 
All right, the miracle that's just happened in their midst is undeniable, right? So they have to come up with a reason now to justify the way they're feeling, you know, towards Jesus. And one that the crowd who's increasingly looking like they're buying into this, you know, something the crowd is going to grab a hold of. And so here's what they come up with. But some of them said it is by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that he's driving out demons. Now, Beelzebul is a name for Satan, now, you may have heard, oh, it's, pardon me, Beelzebul means Lord of the dwelling. You may have heard, and maybe your version of the Bible that you have here is an, is an older translation or something like that, and it might say Beelzebub. Now, Beelzebub means Lord of the flies, and that was kind of a, the Jews would like to, uh, they kind of use it as a cheeky way to get back at Satan and, and kind of make fun of him, because Lord of the flies is kind of like Lord of the poo pile, and so it's kind of like saying, like, Satan's Lord of the poo, you know, you're, you know, you're good for nothing, you're good for the dung heap, so that's, that was kind of a cheeky Jewish reference, Lord of, so when they call Beelzebub or Beelzebul, that's what you're understanding there. So this is what they've come up with to explain away the miracle that they've just seen happen. But this is the position that we're all placed in by the Holy Spirit. You know, we have this question in front of us. What do we do with what we know about Jesus? You know, do you accept what you see and you hear? Do you chase after it and look for more? Or do you reject him and do your best to explain what you've experienced away? I was chatting with a young man a while ago and um, he had chosen to walk away from the Lord. And he was angry at some of the circumstances and the things that had happened in his life. And he couldn't account for these, these things that had happened and reconcile that with his belief in God. And so he chose to just deny God's existence. Now, this isn't a unique story. All of us at times in this life are faced with the question of, does God exist? Is he really real? But it's what we do in these moments that define and strengthen our relationship with God. For this guy, he chose to believe that the things he knew about God were false. And so I asked him, I said, said, haven't you ever experienced the presence of God in your life? I mean, this is the thing about Christianity. It's real. It isn't fake. It isn't just some made up religion. Like this is a real thing. God is real. And so as a believer, you experience at times the presence of God in your life. And those are the little moments that we get that, that, that we get to hold on to when times are rough that remind us that one day when we're in the presence of God for real, every day, all day, it's gonna be so much better. And so I asked him, like, what do, you, what do you do with those moments? Or do you have those moments? And he said, yeah, yeah, I have had those moments. I've had them, you know, when I was worshiping God through singing or song or, or sometimes when I was on like a walk and I was praying, I would kind of get this unmistakable feeling that God's presence was with me and I, he was close to me. And I said, okay, so how do you explain away those moments that you had if God doesn't exist for you anymore? You know, what do you do with that now? These are significant count encounters that we have with the Lord. And you know what he said to me? He said, actually, those are the hardest things for me to explain away. And I'm thinking in the back of my mind, like, why are you trying to explain them away? If they were real to you when they happened, why are you trying to explain them away now? Because life isn't going exactly the way you want it. And he said to me, he said, I've recently tried doing several different kinds of drugs. And I've discovered that one of the types of drugs that, I that I've taken has given me the same feeling that I experience when I have that close relationship feeling with God. And so if a drug, you know, if this particular drug can give me that, that, that same experience, then, you know, God isn't real because it's probably just some chemical cocktail that's going on in my brain that's causing me to feel that way. 
And like my heart was grieved when he said that because for me, sitting here, knowing the truth of God, it just sounded like this desperate lie that Satan was feeding him and telling him anything he could to try and trick him and pull a child away from God. You know, have you ever seen anybody who's, you know, been severely addicted to drugs? You know, they look like somebody that Satan has had their way with. Satan hates us. And so he doesn't care if he destroys us along the way. And our bodies bear the scars of trying to synthetically fabricate what it looks like to be in the presence of God. And I'm not saying that every time somebody does drugs that, that they're thinking, oh, I'm trying to recreate a moment with God. That's not what they're doing. What they're trying to do is have a better moment. They're trying to create a more euphoric experience. They're trying to, you know, get rid of some of the anxiety in life and, and have more joy. That's what they're seeking after. And we have this longing for ecstasy and euphoria. And I know those words, they don't have the best connotation because we think of like sexual things and drug things, but those words in themselves aren't bad. You know, it's just our world and the way that we've chased after getting those things because we're following what, you know, Satan's method for getting them. That's why those words sound bad. But here's what ecstasy actually means. It's an overwhelming feeling of great happiness and joyful excitement. And euphoria is pretty well the same. What's wrong with that? That's what we get when we're in the presence of God. And we're meant to search for euphoria because we're supposed to find it in the presence of our Lord and Savior. And one day we're going to have that experience. However, Satan is always right there standing as close as he can to us, working to give us the temporary quick fix behind the scenes. But you know what? Satan's fingerprints are all over the side effects of the quick fixes that he tries to offer us. You wanna know how, the, how, how we can have assurance that God is real and that he is life-giving? Because when we have these moments where we experience God and we have this, this joy or feeling of his presence around us, there's no negative side effects. Those moments are life-giving, but the synthetic ones that the devil tries to feed us and feed our world, those destroy us. And that's how we can know the difference between death and life and between Satan and God. God offers us life, but Satan masquerades as an angel of light, but the fruit of Satan reveals death and destruction and we can see it everywhere. The guy who I was talking about here, he, you know, as he was walking away from God, he was doing the same thing the Pharisees were doing in this passage of scripture. He was trying to explain away the experiences that he had been given by God about Jesus. But it was his choice. Even if the evidence was suggesting that maybe he was wrong, maybe he, he should have been looking at God one more time. Even if the evidence was suggesting that, he still had that choice to walk away. When it comes to Jesus, we all have that choice to accept him or to reject him. There's no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. You can't just sit on the fence. He doesn't give us that option. You're either for him or you're against him. Listen to what Jesus says about this topic in Luke chapter 12. He says, do you think I came to bring peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. I mean, we kind of knew that last one, right? Like that was there before, right? Before Jesus. Anyway, <laughs> Jesus divides us up. 
between those of us who are for him and those of us who are against him. You know, everyone has a choice to make about Jesus. And this is a deeply personal decision. You know, it doesn't happen along family lines or relational boundaries. No, this is between you and Christ. And you're either gonna choose to hear him as the Holy Spirit reveals him in your life, or you're gonna choose to reject him and try to explain that away. One of the commentaries I read put it this way. Jesus' work demands a response, but the judgment made about his work is not guaranteed. You know, both groups of people here are there that day. As Jesus performed this miracle, saw the same thing. They understood what was going on. Some of them looked at the evidence and they chose to, to accept Jesus for who he really was. The other group of people chose to reject him and ignore everything they had seen and did their best to explain them away. And so after the Pharisees make this accusation about Jesus being under the influence of Satan, Jesus kind of gives them this threefold challenge to challenge anybody who's thinking who might try to explain him away. And here's what he says. First, he demonstrates through logic to them that he is the real deal. Second, he, he explains how he is more powerful than Satan. And third, he shows us the danger of not having God's presence in our lives. Let's continue reading. Jesus knew their thoughts, which, which is amazing. He knew what they were thinking. He knew what, they, what was going on in their hearts. And he says to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive? Find God and experience him. And maybe they'll, they'll choose to respond to God. And if they respond to God, then maybe they'll give glory to God. And Satan certainly doesn't want that. So it's not logical for Satan to do this. And Jesus further makes this point by saying, you know, how are you able to discern between me casting out demons by Satan and your people casting out demons by God's power when the result in the end is the same? The person is freed. He's saying to them, like, look, do you realize how weak your argument is here? And at this point, if they were thinking logically and they were understanding what he was saying and they weren't trying so hard to explain it away, and you gotta believe there's some pride mixed in here they should have just thrown in the towel at that moment and, and said, we're sorry, you're right, forgive us, Lord. But they didn't do that. There's no indication in the text that despite how logical Jesus' argument and how weak theirs looked as he started to pick it apart, there's no evidence at all that these guys just changed their mind and went the right way. So then Jesus concludes the first part of uh, this response by letting them know what's at stake. And he kind of challenges them with this what if statement. You know, what if you're wrong about me? What if I'm doing this by God's power? He says, but what if I drive out demons by the finger of God? Well, then, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, if you're wrong and I am doing this by the finger of God, then it means that you are on the wrong side of the fence here. You're on the evil one's side. You're playing for the enemy now. And the stakes for these guys couldn't have been any higher. You know, it's ironic that these people are telling Jesus that he's doing this work by the power of Satan when they're clearly the ones who are being uh, influenced by Satan's work. And one day, these Pharisees, the people who are thinking this and trying to explain Jesus away in the crowd, one day, they are gonna have to account for this blatant rejection of Jesus standing in front of them and the careless way they handled the revelation of God in front of them. That's not gonna be a good day for these people. 
you know, one day we're gonna have the same moment. We're gonna be held accountable for how and what we did with what the Holy Spirit gave us in regards to Jesus. Where are you with that? The second part of Jesus's response seems like it doesn't really fit here, but because it's the Bible, we know it's supposed to be here, so we gotta look for why is it here? So here it is. When a strong, uh, when a strong man fully armed guards his own home, house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Jesus is saying, do you understand what I have just done in your midst? This is Satan's domain, all of this. And I just walked in here and I disarmed him. I stripped him down and took away his armor. Clearly right in front of you, I've demonstrated my power over the physical world and over the spiritual world. Satan is no match for me. I am the Lord over all. Choose me. And then finally, Jesus kind of wraps up this threefold response with some details about how a demon is exercised. And he says, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and doesn't find it. Then it says, well, I'm gonna return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go down and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. Whenever an exorcism takes place, I don't think anybody would argue that the person is in a much better place and in a much better condition after that process is over with. But unless that person fills the void in their life and in their soul with something better, which is the Holy Spirit, then that person has left themselves open to something even more terrible coming along down the road and taking control of them. And this is the final warning for us that Jesus gives us. If we choose to explain Jesus away, one day the, the, the revelation of God that Jesus or uh, that the Holy Spirit is giving us, one day the revelation is gonna stop. And Satan's gonna be free to come in and do whatever he wants and run amok in our lives. Bumper, she's going home with the, the Jesus fish foamy hand and she's like, I love God. Like that's, she's into it. Blessed is the one who is the mother of this man. And she's going, you know, like this guy must have an amazing mom to have raised such an amazing son. Look what he's gonna do to the world. And Jesus, instead of accepting the praise in that moment, he just, he uses it to kind of put the cherry on the top of the cake of this argument and this discussion that he's had. Knowing that he's sitting in an audience, a mixed audience of people who are for him and some people who are against him, he says this, no, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Essentially saying, look, lady and everyone else, if you're hearing this and you're understanding what's happening in your midst, you're blessed when you respond to that and you obey because you are seeing the very plan of God at work in front of you and you can be a part of that. Obey what you're seeing in front of your eyes right now and what the Holy Spirit is revealing to you. Uh, the worship that, that God has given you about Jesus. You know, have you had a moment where the Holy Spirit has impressed him upon you, you know, while you're reading your Bible or maybe in a worship service or maybe in a quiet moment of contemplation? Maybe God's given you a word in your mind that, that's just always there and you can't get rid of it. I know the most significant moment I had with, with Jesus was standing in the middle of a field praying one time. And... Uh, I had this unmistakable feeling that, that the Lord was with me in that moment in, in a more tangible way than I had experienced. 
And he said, would you get on your knees before me? And, I, and I've shared this story with you guys before, but, but he said, would you get on your knees and pray? And I was like, of course I will. And so it was this perfect moment though. And it had the world in his hands. That's the moment I hang on to knowing that I'm gonna experience that every day when I get into God's presence, that he has got us. The most significant moment I have, a part of me, uh, how much we know about Jesus, part of me, is, 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 the, is not as important as what we do with the bit that we know about him. And if you're listening to, the, to this today and Jesus is calling upon your heart and maybe he's calling you and he's showing, hey, I'm real. Or maybe he's calling you to do something in your life or to change something about yourself or to change a behavior that you've got going on. Would you do him a favor and acknowledge that it's him calling upon you? Don't wait for some greater revelation or I need a bigger sign. Just acknowledge that there's that probably the Holy Spirit trying to get your attention. Acknowledge that Jesus is real. Confess you know it's him and then see what else he's got to tell you and see how he leads you in that. And the last thing I want to say is this. If you are somebody who knows Jesus and you're sitting here today, understand this. It is literally a gift of God that you actually can see and understand the truth that you see in the Bible or that you hear in a sermon or that you experience in your life. Not everyone sees what you see or hears what you hear. I mean, the Pharisees that day, they had, the, they had literally had Jesus standing in front of them. God's revelation to the world standing in their midst and they missed it but you have the Holy Spirit upon you. You are blessed to have the truth and to see the truth of God as it resides within you. So be grateful that you have that, that he has given that to you and then celebrate that with him. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the revelation of Jesus that you have given us. And Lord, I pray that uh, if somebody here hasn't experienced Jesus in their life, Lord, that you would go now and by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would open their eyes to see the truth of Christ in them. And Lord, for those of us who are here who know you, Lord, continue to impress upon us and guide us and lead us by the power of your Holy Spirit to be more like Jesus. Show us where we're falling short. Lord, we wanna be like you. Make us want to be like you. Help us in this. Help us to be more like your son. In your name we pray, amen.